Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> I think it just speaks to how, sadly, the theories about Seth, the baseless theories about Seth, have risen to this level where it's like, yeah, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pull him in for anything. Voting machines, Pizzagate, QAnon, whatever, you know. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if someone had some COVID theory that somehow pulled Seth in because his name has become just sort of a, a not a shorthand, but it just has to be, it, it's just right there for people who are already swimming in this conspiratorial soup, something that they can just grab onto easily because they already believe that he's part of this world. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics watchers and listeners. Um, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by your faithful host, Josh Bertram. How's it going, Josh? Doing well, doing well. How are you? Good, good. And we are joined again by um, Andy Kroll, who's an investigative journalist at ProPublica, and he is the author of the book, A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. And we just want to welcome you back to the show, Andy. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, no, uh, no problem. And, you know, the, your your book, I, I, I will I will say, um, is is a excellent read. It reads almost like a crime story. Um, it's it's not like it's not a difficult read, which isn't like a bad thing. It's just like it's easy to kind of just pick it up and just keep reading and not want to put it down. Um, and for what it's worth, your beat your your book beat out um, Confidence Man yeah. by Maggie <laughs> Haberman because I I dumb I, I I got both books about the same time and I was like I would read some of like Maggie's book in the morning and read yours like at night and I end up finishing yours um, and not Maggie's. So for for what it's worth. You know, um, if, you if only in this space your book beat Confidence Man, then I would consider it a win. <laughs> I will take that victory. <laughs> I appreciate that. Every, all, everything you just said, I really do. It means a lot. Have you ever watched Arrested Development? Of course. Confidence Man <laughs> 1 and Confidence Man 2. Whatever you can be Confidence Man now. <laughs> yes. If I joined an exclusive club that maybe I don't want to be in, yes. but I probably should be in. <laughs> Well, I, I guess to start us off is, um, you know, so why why did you why did you write this book? And, you know, what's sort of the significance of W Street in the title? Um, in my line of work as an investigative reporter, I usually start a project because I got a tip from a source or uh, something interesting in a document popped out at me and I thought I've got to chase that down or. I read something in the news that day and it sparks some kind of idea or reporting thread for me. Strangely, my first book, this book, did not come from any of those avenues. The name on the front of the book, not mine, but the other one, Seth Rich, you know, was a young guy in his mid-20s who was living and working in Washington, D.C., when he was killed in the summer of 2016 and he and I ran in similar social circles. It was a personal connection that actually sparked the idea for, for the book. He and I were not friends. I, I, I wouldn't overstate it cause that wouldn't be accurate, but we had a lot of friends in common. 
played on a crappy beer league soccer team on the weekends. <laughs> um, it just sort of ran in the similar uh, rat pack of a certain age here in DC. I mean, DC is lousy with young people in their twenties who, uh, which I was a long time ago, um, <laughs> who care about politics and, you know, are here for whatever reason. So when Seth is murdered at the intersection of Flagler and W street in Northwest DC, which is why I chose to put the street name in there. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tragedy that ripples through that social circle that, that we are both in here in DC. It is, you know, a classic case of there before the grace of God go I. I mean, Seth had been out at a bar on Saturday night, was walking home probably later than he should have. Who among us has not done that? I mean, I certainly have. I probably have him from the same bar that he did because I used to live just down the street from it. And myself, people I knew, those friends that we had in common that I mentioned, we absorb this news as, again, a sort of senseless crime, a tragedy, someone who you know was really destined to do, I think, great things in politics or beyond politics whose life had been cut short. And we thought that the story would, for better or worse, end there. You know, his, his family would have a chance to have a funeral. They would grieve. Maybe they would start a scholarship in his name, something like that. And we would move on. And that, you know, as happens with these kinds of things. But that is, of course, not what happened. It's not what happened. I mean, I, I've written an entire book about what did happen. And it really was this unbelievable story that plays out over five or six years after Seth is killed. And at some point, a year or two after he'd been killed, really just about a year, actually, I took off my, you know, my, my normal guy, DC guy hat, <laughs> my DC bro hat, And I put on my reporter hat and I said, you know, there's something going on here that one, I don't understand. And two, seems to speak to all of these bigger themes, issues, problems, changes um, that I've been writing about in my day job, but it's I'm seeing it through the personal lens. These things kind of collide. And it's at that point that I say, okay, I've got to, I've got to dig into this thing. I've got to understand why this happened, how it was allowed to happen, what it says about politics and online culture, American life, in the 21st century that, that this story played out the way it did. Yeah. You know, I, I noticed that like the, the Seth rich conspiracy is like a through line that you see from, I mean, like everything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, like, so, so whether it's like uh pizza gate or Russia or I, I don't know, like a number of different just controversies seem to all kind of intersect Mm -hmm. to this this conspiracy in one form or another and um and we're 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 going to get to to all of that hopefully um the time that we got but but you know one of the things that i thought was interesting was you know whenever we think of like the seth rich conspiracy we th um at least for me anyways maybe just i'm a democrat like i tend to think of like republicans republican media culpability um but that's not necessarily the case with Seth Rich. Um, you mentioned in your book um, two instances of, you know, Democrats kind of having a um, some 
some blame for perpetuating this conspiracy, one dealing with Bernie Sanders and one dealing with um, Hillary Clinton. So I was wondering if maybe maybe you can talk about, you know, how how that how the Seth Rich story ties into each of uh, those two politicians. Yeah, it, it was one of the more interesting revelations that came out of the reporting. You know, when I first decided that I was going to really investigate what happened here, it was about a year after Seth had been killed. And so we're talking about the summer of 2017. And by that point, Fox News had 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 really, you know, blasted the story out to the masses, as I write in the book, the sort of act two of the book is, is Fox's part of the story. Sean Hannity, Lou Dobbs, all of these other conservative figures. Um, Roger Stone had already come along and um, you know, taken this, this, this tragedy and tried to use it for his own gain. And so I, like you, thought, okay, maybe this is sort of more, you know, just uh, this happened in, in conservative media or, or, or far-right online culture. But actually, it didn't start there. It started the opposite side, on the far left, as I discovered during the reporting. I mean, within, it's incredible, even, even now thinking about it, but within, you know, hours of Seth's murder being announced to the world. Uh, the DNC put out a statement saying that this had happened. You saw these theories start to surface online, on Twitter and on Reddit and other online forums. And it was not conservatives. It was not Trump supporters. It was not Roger Stone at that point. It was actually supporters of, pretty hardcore supporters of Bernie Sanders, who of course was the kind of underdog candidate in 2016 for the Democratic nomination. And it was supporters of the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein. There's a blast from the past for you. They were the first to say, huh, this guy worked for the DNC. You know, maybe he was a whistleblower. or Maybe he, he could expose or what had wanted to expose wrongdoing at the DNC. Because you remember, and this, this is instructive, I think, is when people spin together a theory about something. They're often drawing on things that they already believe, feelings they already have, allegiances that pre-exist, whatever this thing that just happened. So in this case, Seth had been killed, and supporters of Bernie Sanders were already primed to believe that the DNC had screwed him over in 2016. And they did do a little bit of that. Not as much as some people said, but they did a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. And so immediately the mind jumps to you know, there's this dot they know and this dot that they believe. And so they connect them. Mm-hmm. Maybe this young DNC staffer was going to expose that thing we that we think is true. Um, and so, yeah, it's it starts on the on the left end of the political spectrum. And, you know, I, I, I hope people who read the book come away understanding that's not a, 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 a figure pointing at just Fox News or at just the Bernie Sanders people, anything like that. I mean, this kind of conspiratorial thinking, this jumping to conclusions um, is just a feature of extreme politics, polarized politics. And that is not unique to one side or the other. That is a fixture of the left and the right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um you know, it was funny, two two things. We did, you know, our first um, interview, 
with you, Andy. And I, um, I didn't know if at the time, but the uh, Netflix documentary mm-hmm. series that has his, um, that has his story in it. I watched it, or media kills, or it was something like um, about the media, right? And um, I watched it, and I didn't even think about how you had. I had just interviewed someone who knew this guy at some level, and I was like, "Wow, that's a really interesting story." And my wife was like, "Didn't you just? Didn't you just interview the guy?" And I'm like, "Oh wait, yeah, I did." <laughs> I was like, "I totally. I think I watched it either like like two days later or something like that. It was just, it was just funny." So, are you as uh, as the next Netflix documentary series going to be about you? Oh, I mean, I hope not, because usually if you're the subject of a Netflix yeah, documentary, you're, you're, you're either a, a British royal or something bad has happened to you on the Definitely internet. Definitely do not want to be the subject of a documentary in your life, most likely. <laughs> yeah. Not a Netflix documentary. No, no, no. But I mean, I think, I mean, I, I watched it. documentary. No, 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 no. I want the like soft focus, you know, Sunday morning CBS Yes, um, or the Oprah interview. There we go. <laughs> Nothing um, goes wrong on Oprah. Exactly. So I was, yeah. You know, I, I just thought that was funny. But when you're reflecting on this, you know, like it, it, it feels like Seth Rich must have been like, you know, like Democratic royalty or at like the top of the uh, food chain or like it, one of the most important people in Washington with the size of this. Uh, Besides this conspiracy theory, what, you know, what exactly did he do that made him so like that made them even gave it like enough gunpowder, so to speak, for something to be this big of an explosion? What, what exactly did he do? What, what gave him like the position to have this kind of, you know, story even be plausible and come out? It comes down almost entirely to the place where he worked, the Democratic National Committee. He was not a senior Democratic official. He was not a party bigwig. He didn't make very much money. He had very little seniority. In fact, he worked on a team at the DNC that was all lawyers, and he was the only one who wasn't, apart from the interns. So... I mean, it's one of these things that you, in in the aftermath, when the conspiracy thinking takes hold, all of a sudden you see him, you know, his seniority grows. His, his power starts to just, you know, multiply in a way that has actually no connection to what he really did. Um, I mean, he, he worked in a, in a, on a team there that was trying to get more people registered to vote trying to find ways to push back against voter suppression, like voter ID or strict voter ID laws or closing polling places, things like that. Um, and he had the word data in his title. And then, you know, when the conspiracy evolves and it goes on to, oh, well, this guy must have given all of those stolen emails to WikiLeaks. I'm sure we'll get to it at some point. Um, you know, the term data in his name, which had nothing to do with IT or computers or servers, but was like literally names and addresses for voters and spreadsheets, you know, data becomes so stretched. So it's kind of like the assistant manager and then the assistant to the manager? 
Yeah. And yeah, he was exactly. like, he was like the assistant to the assistant to the manager. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. He, his no, boss, <laughs> he worked for a team of lawyers who they had a boss, but then their boss reported to, I think, one more person and then the boss. So, I mean, he did good work. And no doubt. No it doubt. was important work, but it was he was not a mastermind. He was not a a political Svengali. He nor was he a tech expert or a Edward Snowden, for instance. No, I mean he he, was, he wasn't any of those things. But again, all you need is the kernel of something if you want to blow it up into a big story. And again, Seth's case is just Seth's story is is just the clearest example of that where it's when he worked at the dnc he must have been trying to expose the dnc's supposed wrongdoing he had data in his title he must have been a tech expert who could secretly hack his own employer while he worked there at the same time and then you know i mean it just it doesn't make any sense but it doesn't need to make sense it just has to have that tiny kernel of plausibility somewhere to then take off and, and become something totally different yeah, you know, and, and and even though the the book, you know, primarily focuses on Seth Rich, um, you know, as I stated to you earlier, like it really does, it really does seem like it's it's a broader commentary of the entire conspiracy ecosystem, um, you know, and and one of the reasons why I think that you know folks like yourself and the work that you do is so important, um, because as a reporter for ProPublica, you know, I'm I'm taking it on good faith that you value quality over, <laughs> over clicks. Correct. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the, 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 the birth of this conspiracy theory really seemed to take off, you know, on just clickbait, um, mm -hmm. and specifically the, uh, reporting by the Fox news reporter, Malia Zimmerman. So I was wondering, maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who Malia is and, and what was the story that, that really kind of launched this into sort of the, the, the conspiracy um, ecosystem. She was a reporter who works for Fox news, not someone you would have seen on air all the time, like a talking head or a host, like a Hannity or a Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, but she worked for foxnews.com, which employed its own reporters to go out and report stories with a sort of Fox spin on them or a Fox angle uh, to that story. And sometimes, you know, the TV shows would promote those stories, but a lot of times they didn't. It, but still, it was this newsroom within Fox that was less known but still, you know, a, a part of the, the Fox News overall operation. What I found so interesting about 
her story and what I learned in the reporting about how Fox came to publish this story about Seth um, was that Fox has long been critical of mainstream reporters for saying they're biased, they know what they want to say, and they just go out and self-select the facts or the voices or the experts to confirm something that they already believe is true. They're not out searching for facts and data and, and, and important information that we need to basically have a democracy. They're out there just sort of cherry picking stuff to, you know, confirm what they already believe. What happened with this Fox News story, that's really uh, one of the, the, the inflection points of this whole story, is exactly what Fox has accused everyone else of doing for years. I mean, what happens is this reporter has it in her head that Seth Rich stole emails from his own employer, the Democratic National Committee, and gave them to Julian Assange from WikiLeaks in 2016. You'll remember that WikiLeaks published a bunch of stolen documents, emails, reports <laughs> throughout the 2016 campaign. The most famous ones are John Podesta's emails, uh -huh. which you can still search for on the WikiLeaks website. But before that, there was this huge trove, tens of thousands of emails taken from the DNC itself. And so this reporter, I should add as well that almost immediately, based on the work of cybersecurity analysts, mm. the intelligence community, the FBI, the, I mean, the whole breadth of you know the law enforcement intelligence community in DC says all the evidence is that this is a foreign state attack, that this is not uh, an Edward Snowden, that this is not any other kind. Of, you know, it's not like a cyber criminal or something like an e criminal. It's a uh, it, it, this is a foreign adversary of ours trying to mess up the election. In this case, the Russian intelligence uh, military intelligence agency. Fox, this reporter, gets it in their head that, no, this was Seth Rich. This mm. Russia story is not real, despite all the evidence that says that it is. And instead, it was this young guy who worked at the DNC. And as I show in the book, you know, Fox essentially has the story written ahead of time, saying that this guy, Seth Rich, was this insider. And then in these emails, you see... This Fox reporter, uh, a sort of source contact of hers, and then another guy, a, a, a former DC cop and PI, all talking about, okay, here's the story. How do we confirm that this is true? Hmm. We need sources to say that this is accurate, which is not how journalism works. It's certainly not how journalism works at ProPublica. Right. So I just thought that this, you know, the, 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 machinations leading up to this story's publication, which was in May of 2017, really shined a light into how Fox operated in this case. The lack of mm. fact-checking, the lack of vetting, the way that a story was sort of preconceived and then reporters and sources went out and said, okay, how do we prove that this is true? You know, that's not really how this works, but it is how it worked in this really um, explosive case. You know, one of the biggest yeah. uh, journalistic 
screw-ups in Fox's history. It's amazing, like, uh, just hearing it, it. It's so easy to um, want to make things. Like, it's so easy to want to have a hypothesis, right? And then find only confirming evidence for your hypothesis. And we all do that, but it's that's why you have, like... That's why you have a method that you use to, to to correct for that, so that you're not just uh, using you know confirmation bias all the time. Um, but you know, speaking of uh, confirmation bias, and this isn't going to be a good connection at all. But I've heard that uh, Comet Ping Pong or whatever is called that pizza shop has pretty good pizza at it. And was that one of Seth Seth's favorite shops, or what's the connection there? Something about pizza, Comet Pizza, and Seth, and John Podesta. I don't know. Nick, if we had like a, a, a connect the dots, connect the dots for us, and then throw in Hillary Clinton, too. Oh, man. This is a whole podcast. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, so after the 2016 election, this theory forms online, and it is a theory that kind of mutates from the ooze of the internet in part inspired by these leaked emails that WikiLeaks published from John Podesta, who had run the Clinton campaign. And the theory holds that there is a pizza place in Northwest DC called common ping pong that is secretly the hub of this child sex trafficking operation presided over by Podesta and Hillary Clinton and other Democratic elites. The evidence for this is <laughs> one that John Podesta talked about going to this pizza place in his emails. And it's a well-known, popular, uh, delicious place in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've been there a number of times. I even had my book party there um, just to have a little fun. And... The online sleuths see these references to pizza and food and other things in Podesta's emails and decide that it must be code for sinister things like, again, child trafficking and other vile stuff. Um, and so Comet Ping Pong becomes the focus of a new conspiracy theory called Pizzagate. That it's, you know, in the basement of this pizza restaurant, which actually doesn't have a basement, there is this sinister operation happening. These vile things are taking place down there. The connection to Seth actually is, there are, there are multiple connections to it. One is that Seth had helped show the world that, you know, these, through leaking emails, that there's no evidence that he leaked, that, you know, Democrats were, you know, corrupt, doing evil things behind the scenes. Pizzagate was in yet another instance of that. And then as the same people online, by the way, the same sleuths who are saying Seth Rich really was the leaker. He's like a new Edward Snowden. They're the same ones who after the election pivot to, oh, wow, you know, Seth warned us about this stuff. But now these other emails that got leaked are warning us about a new thing. And so they, you know, it's the same kind of online weirdo detectives who focused on Seth for a while. And then after that election, start focusing on this pizza place. It's their new cause. Um, now, another one of these connections was 
the lawyer, a fellow I write about in the book, a guy named Mike Gottlieb, who helped the owner of Comet Ping Pong sort of push back against Pizzagate, would go on to help represent Seth's older brother, Aaron, when Aaron got sucked into the whole conspiracy theory industrial complex, in part because Mike Gottlieb, you know, had done this work for Comet, had kind of seen how this world works, had figured out some tools, some tactics, a playbook, and then says, well, I've got to help other people now that I have some experience doing this work. And when I met Mike, and he told me, you know, that he was you know, doing this work for Aaron Rich at the time, but said, well, you know, I learned some of these things from working for Comet. That was one of these like little prickle moments when I was thinking, oh, wow, like, there are more connections here than I realized, or there are characters in this story who have multiple touch points along the way. Um, you know, there, there is a really compelling story to be told here. One there, there is character, there are characters, there are not just some bad people, but people that you can root for as well, who are trying to defend the truth and, uh, people's reputations all at once. So it's, um, it's almost like Pizzagate is kind of like in the same Marvel cinematic universe mm. as as the Seth Rich story. And then when QAnon comes along, QAnon is like um whatever the whatever that last Marvel movie was when all of the characters come together, Infinity War or whatever. Endgame. Endgame, there you go. <laughs> then it's like Endgame. QAnon is where you pull all of these things together and you know you have the endgame, Marvel Endgame version of, of an <laughs> online conspiracy theory. Yeah, you, 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 yeah, it's it's so weird because I I I I know that that you uh you were on um or you're interviewed by by Mike uh, Rothschild yeah and uh, we 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 had him on the show to talk about QAnon and and it was like I mean one it's just our minds were just like blown <laughs> you know that people would believe the stuff that they believe but um but you know what I was gonna tell you was that like one of the things I really liked about your book was that you really I think did a good job presenting kind of the human element of, of what happens when these conspiracy theories start affecting your life. Um, So whether that's, you know, the, the pizza shop owner or Aaron or, you know, or Mary and Joel, like, like you, you really did a good job humanizing them where you, you, you felt bad, like like you wanted to just jump in the book and just like <laughs> give them give them a hug or something because you're like you poor people, you know like here you were just living your life and then now you've got like you know Jack Pozobiec I don't know Pozobiec yeah Pozobiec you know like like coming into your your pizza parlor with like cameras and yeah. just perpetuating this thing and and. It's just like it's it's just so so sad, but but you you did bring up Matt um, Gottlieb, and I'm and I'm and he's one of the I don't I don't I'm I'm not sure if, if calling him a hero is the right word, but he's he's one of the the good guys I would say kind of in, in the story. Um, and um, so so two two questions: Is he related to Scott Gottlieb? I don't believe so. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I I think I asked him at one point because the pandemic coincided with the story mm-hmm. and i don't i don't believe he is okay because <laughs> it's, it's a it's a it's a very unique last name so i just figured that maybe there's some connect another connection yeah <laughs> but, but 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 you know so so he was one of the the good guy lawyers and and but your book 
talked about a number of different lawyers, both good and bad. And I'm, I was wondering if maybe you can kind of give us who are some of the players, yeah. um, both good and bad, you know, some of the lawyers that were kind of jumped into this probably with their own careers, you know, in mind, not necessarily trying to get to the bottom of what happened, you know, and then there are others like, like Matt. So, so maybe you can kind of, you know, run through who are some of the, the, the legal players in this conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lawyers pop up all over this book and on the side of, I would say truth and integrity and reputation and all that. And, and on the other side as well, and, you know, it was a useful reminder to me, maybe when I didn't necessarily need, but that, you know, you can use a law degree and a bar license in a lot of different directions, sometimes in the uh, defense of, of truth and justice, and sometimes in other d- directions that maybe aren't necessarily in service of those values that I feel like a lawyer should be uh, defending. Uh, I mean, I think one character who, <laughs> uh, to this day, I still remain fascinated by is a fellow named Jack Berkman. Berkman is just this one-of-a-kind Washington, D.C. creature. He is a lawyer, but at the time he comes into this story, more of a lobbyist. I mean, he is a, he's a registered lobbyist at the time. But maybe when your listeners think of a lobbyist, they think of someone who is representing big companies or wealthy individuals. They are, you know, the, the leading lobbyists of town for some, the airline industry or the distilled spirits council of America, whatever, one of my favorite lobbying groups. Um, I, I call them big whiskey, but um, Berkman's sort of a lobbyist for these sort of weird fringy type companies and people and he is obsessed with attention. He's obsessed with the limelight. He sees the story of Seth's murder and believes that it is a chance for him to inject himself into this tragedy and try to get the name Jack Berkman out to the world. He offers a reward. He kind of ingratiates himself with the rich family and then takes his own spin into conspiracy world. At one point going on Alex Jones's show, InfoWars, and the riches cut him off. Um, but but Berkman never gives up the case. And you know, I don't want to totally spoil it. The 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 sort of Berkman climactic moment for for your audience if they do read the book. But you know, there is this Cohen Brothers-esque moment involving Jack Berkman, a disgruntled associate of his in a parking garage in in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river, there may or may not have been uh, wounds suffered to the buttocks area for Jack Berkman. That's how, that's how his storyline kind of ends. Um, And again, it was just another one of those moments where I, it's like, I cannot believe that this is real, that this actually happened. And indeed, you know, Berkman is such a outlandish character that, even when the Washington Post and other local news outlets reported this incident in the garage, we'll just call it that. Mm. I thought to myself, like, there, I, I've got to like vet the heck out of this thing. <laughs> so I filed a public records request with the Arlington Police Department, and I said I want the whole entire case file for the Jack Berkman garage incident. 
And lo and behold, it's like uh, 1,500 pages long. And like the, the, the documentation in here, you know, like the color of the cones in the parking garage, you know, what... <laughs> What the what, there was a, a woman I believe who was staying at the hotel connected to the parking garage, who heard Burke and like running out of the garage after this incident had taken place. I mean, every possible detail you can imagine is accounted for in this huge police report for this very bizarre incident. Um, so that's why so I, so I put it in the book and you know in a, in, in a fairly good detail because the the police collected all that detail. Um, so Berkman, you know, is just one of these, these one of these characters who, uh, you know, uh, uh, if they ever make this thing into a television or show or something, I don't know who they'd get to cast, who they cast <laughs> as him. But uh, I think that the they would have fun with that challenge. You know, and and you 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 bring up the level of detail, and you know, I I was just impressed with like, I mean, like you you read these things, um, or you read the book thinking that you were somehow like a fly on every wall, you know, on, on all these stories. And, and I know like with, with the Berkman situation, the, you know, there was an encounter that you, you described with, you know, he was flirting with some of the, you know, uh, female staffs at the Marriott um, and like he gave his number and the, you know, the staff threw his number in the trash. And I'm just thinking like, like, how, how do you even know that? Like, 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 do you interview the staff at the Marriott or, or is this sort of part of, you know, when you did the records request, like this is this is the level of detail that they had in the report? This was from the police report. Um, I mean, unfortunately, the, the Key Bridge Marriott, where all of this took place, uh, it has been closed down and I couldn't go in and find that employee because that thought the whole thing's, you know, boarded up at this point. But that that employee had given a statement to the police uh, very funny statement because he's like, this this clown keep comes in all the time. He always does the same thing. He comes up to the desk. He you know he flirts with the the receptionist. This time he gave me his phone number. Like the <laughs> the, the disdain is just like dripping off the page in this statement. Um, so, I mean, so that you know that's it's, it's why I enjoyed telling the story and having the space to tell it in a book because you know sometimes those details get cut when you're writing a, sh a shorter story and that's fire because people's attention, you know, people's time's limited. Um, but with a book, you can kind of, you know, put those little Easter eggs in there that you hope people notice and hope people uh, find. And also, you know, this is a heavy book for sure. And at times, you know, it's, it's, it is, uh, you know, pretty emotional stuff for sure. So I did try to when possible and within reason Put some lighter stuff in there, some some yeah. some cheeky stuff, just so that maybe you get a little bit of a, a laugh in between the like heavier stuff about Seth's family, the investigation, and and, and all that. Yeah, that um, I'm I'm glad you did that. Um, I know it is such a such a heavy uh, subject, and and then the the way in which it just blew up um, far beyond what anyone would ever ever think you know um what what is the current and let, let me give a little context what's the current um state of this conspiracy mm. in the conspiracy ether out there i guess one thing i'm thinking is that 
correct me if I'm wrong, that Fox News came to a settlement with the rich family. So they came to a, well, like millions of dollars or something like that. They came to like some seven figure Mm -hmm. settlement, right, with the rich family. And you figure that that would say, okay, well, this news agency retracted the story. They had to shell out millions because of this story. Um, you would figure that if they had truth, normally Fox News doesn't just like shelling out millions to people, right. is my guess. Um, what does that say about the truth of this story and how people take it? What kind of th- what what do people say about it now that it's all just that's what they want you to think? They did it to cover it up, or what? What, what do you think? In the case of Seth Rich. The theories about him reached such a high volume and such a large audience that, based on everything I can tell, there is no way to put them to bed forever. There is no way to, pardon the cliche, put that genie back in the bottle. Even after... Fox retracted its story in May of 2017, the story that Malia Zimmerman had written. Even after they had settled with Joel and Mary Rich in November of 2020, and even after Aaron had received uh, an apology, a retraction, um, uh, and, and, and resolved his own lawsuit a lawsuit that was separate from his parents because he had his own specific claims. The Seth Rich conspiracy theory lives on. There are people out there who take it almost as an article of faith that he is who they believe he was, that, that he did what they believe he did, which is that he was this, this leaker, whistleblower person from the 2016 election. Uh, the you know the the volume uh, of the chatter about Seth Rich uh, in certain places online, Twitter, Reddit, Telegram, whatever, you know it ebbs and flows. It something will sort of spark it up, and you'll see mentions of his name increase a little bit, and then it will die down a bit, but it will never go away. Um, it will never you know you you just you can't. You can't ban people from mentioning his name. And at some point, you just can't take that idea out of people's heads, even in the face of all the contradictory evidence you can possibly marshal. I mean, in some corners, you will find people, as I've seen, say, Fox must be in on it. You know, they were obvious. They were someone put pressure on them to retract the story or they got weak need and they just wouldn't stand their ground and stand up for what really is the really is the truth truth in quotes um but these things just don't go go away uh unfortunately and i think that's that's one of the hardest things for joel and mary rich seth's parents i think they wish people would just stop talking about him certainly stop talking about him in this way accusing him of something that there's no evidence he did but you know, it's been a it's been a six year 
process for them trying to get to a place where they can be, you know, they, 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 they can coexist in that world. They can be okay in a world where that they know that that chatter is happening somewhere out there on the internet. You know, I'm, I'm curious, like kind of connecting the story to, to today, um, um, or today's time anyways, um, with, you know, with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, um, some of the Twitter accounts that you mentioned in your book, specifically like Matt Couch, um, you know, like now he's back on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, connected to that is, you know, Alex Jones just had this huge civil lawsuit, you know, thing that was settled and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that he would have to pay for defamation because of the Sandy Hook um, comments he's made on his show. Like what, what impact, you know, do you think both, you know, sort of the, the resurrection of some of these really, really horrible Twitter accounts coming back online and, you know, the defamation lawsuit in Sandy Hook, do, do you think plays into, you know, the, the Seth Rich um, story and or, you know, closure for, for Mary and, and Joel? Yeah, I, I think that you're describing um, events that are sort of pulling in opposite directions. I think that Elon Musk's time running Twitter so far uh, seems to be marked by a, a belief that more aggressive content moderation, uh, more enforcement of terms of service. I mean, a, a belief that a private social media platform should police that pl that platform around harmful disinformation, that that is not a priority, possibly not even necessary at all. I think that's why you're seeing folks like I mean, Couch is back. He had been suspended for, I think, COVID-related um, misinformation, but tons of other accounts. I mean, Andrew England, the you know one of the foremost uh, neo-Nazis in America, was let back onto Twitter eventually. Um, clearly, t Twitter is moving in a direction where there is less oversight and policing of of, of harmful disinformation. And so you will see things like the Seth Rich series, COVID misinformation, Pizzagate, I mean, you name it. You will see that stuff grow in volume, grow in number um, on Twitter. I mean, that's just, that's just a fact. And there's been some early research suggesting that, you know, disinformation has seen an uptick in Twitter, but it's pretty, pretty early right now to, to have a clear sense of that. So you have the Musk era on Twitter pulling in one direction. But I think you do, on the, on the other hand, pulling in the other direction, are these lawsuits that are, in some cases, just concluded or still underway in the other, that I do think have a deterrent effect on people out there who think that they can say whatever they want about other individuals, even if it defames them, harms their reputation, and so on. Yeah, that the Alex Jones cases. I mean, he's at this point, I think, facing more than a billion dollars in um, potential, uh, you know, damages that he has to pay. That could change as the cases get appealed or those settlements get ironed out. But that's a pretty big price tag. <laughs> that's a pretty big penalty for telling harmful lies, which is what Alex Jones did. 
I think you have the Fox News Dominion case and the Fox News Smartmatic case underway where those voting machine companies have alleged that, you know, Fox defamed them by saying crazy conspiracy theories on, on, on air, how those play out as well. So, um, you know, I, I think that these cases, not to mention Joel and Mary's case, Aaron's case, I do think that, that they send a signal to people out there that someone is watching and there could be accountability if you spread these conspiracy theories about people that have no basis in fact and that damage their reputation, damage their livelihood. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a it's a interesting time for looking at these questions, reporting on these questions. Feels like good, you know, po- positive movement in one realm and backsliding in another. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's but it's funny you you mentioned Dominion and there was a <clears throat> there was a belief I forgot uh, who was promoting that in your book, but you said that like Dominion was accused of being a part of the Seth Rich conspiracy. <laughs> Patrick Byrne, yeah, said that. I mean, again, it's another one of these these connections to like what Josh was saying earlier. And I think it just speaks to how sadly the theories about Seth, the baseless theories about Seth have risen to this level where it's like, yeah, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pull him in for anything, voting machines, Pizzagate, QAnon, whatever, you know? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if someone had some COVID theory that somehow pulled Seth in because his name has become just sort of a, a not a shorthand, but it just has to be, it, it's just right there for people who are already swimming in this conspiratorial soup, something that they can just grab onto easily because they already believe that he's part of this world. Yeah. You know, so, so one of, probably one of the most interesting characters that I thought um, um, that you had in your book was um, a character by the name of Deb Signs, And I'm, I'm curious if you can maybe explain a little bit about who she was or is, um, you know, the rele- relevancy um, and, and why, why you chose to incorporate her and in kind of the, 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 the broader story. The first reason I wanted to bring her in was I wanted to see how, well, well, the obvious one is I wanted to have some element of the actual homicide investigation threaded into the book. You know, we have this sort of storyline of the rich family. We have the storyline of the conspiracy theories themselves and how they evolved. I wanted someone who could be the, the law enforcement character, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, you know, there was a detective who worked on the case for a while. I tried to get to him, but was, was unable to. He, I do mention him in the book, um, a guy named Del Camera. Uh, but Signs, I realized, had, you know, by the, by the time I was sort of deep into reporting the book, she had retired because she was a veteran homicide prosecutor here in D.C. and then retired. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I can get to her. She's retired. She should be able to talk about this case. Um, hopefully she will. Uh, I, I wrote her a letter by hand and <laughs> mailed it to her, hoping that that gesture would, uh, uh, you know, engender some kind of interest, goodwill, trust. Uh, and thankfully she, in the end, did end up talking to me and, and we, we talked quite a lot for the book. 
And it's, and of course, once I got to know her, she is, uh, you know, she's like an amazing character, an actual character. You know, <laughs> she's, she's chain smoking, foul mouth, uh, wears <laughs> Chuck Taylors to the office. Um, you know, she listens to 50 cent before a trial to like get pumped up for, for, you know, her opening testimony. I mean, like she is, you can't make this kind of thing up. She's that good of a character. Um, and the, you know, the other thing that, that, that I hope comes across is I, in the form of her character and her story was, you know, she had investigated tons of homicides, high profile cases, you know, doubles, triples, quadruple homicides, um, politically sensitive cases, but you know this is one of the first cases that she'd ever done where this whole world of online conspiracy theorizing collided with the very tangible physical world of homicide investigations, and I thought that that was an interesting and and new kind of collision was how those online theories not just intersected, but actually made it more difficult for her, got in the way of her work trying to solve this homicide, which in the end she didn't do. She didn't solve the case. The case is ongoing to this day. Um, but that was something I thought, you know, we, we hadn't really seen that in other stories at this point. So that collision I really wanted to, to, to get across. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking, <clears throat> I think her her character would, would probably be be well portrayed by like a Jodie Foster or like a Sigourney Weaver or something. Oh, she, yeah. Signs would love that. Say that. Yeah. She would, she, she would be great. She would be, uh, uh, I think flattered by yeah. any of those people. But, but the, 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 the reason I had asked you, you know, why, why you included her, uh, which, which, which I, I'm glad you did was, you know, th- there was, there was a change in kind of like the tense that you wrote the book in, when it got to describing like your last interaction with her. Yeah. Uh, it was very, you know, very first person kind of oriented. Um, and, and I, and I, this might just be like insider baseball stuff, but like, was that an intentional, you know, like change of, of tense and um, narrative? Like was, was it personal like to you? Yeah. Good question. Um, that chapter or that, I can't remember if it's an entire chapter, if it's part of a chapter, but uh, was not there in the first draft of the book that I had written. Um, you know, I think the way it, the the way I sort of ended her storyline initially was with her retirement. You know, she she basically she has a meeting with Robert Mueller's two people from Robert Mueller's team who were investigating the Russian interference in in 2016, and you know she has a meeting with them to just kind of give them an update on this high profile case that she had. And then she basically rides off into the sunset. She retires and, you know, unfortunately the case is not solved. She calls Aaron. She tells him, you know, I'm sorry that I couldn't bring this thing over the finish line, but I'm exhausted and time for me to go. And I ended it there. And I think it was my agent, David, who was like, this is, you can't end it here. You can't, this is like, it's either two, you know, her story needs one more beat or, you know, we, we, we need to hear from her one more time to at least leave the reader with the clearest sense possible of like, what did she think happened? 
She investigated this case with more tools at her disposal than anyone else. The murder specifically I'm talking about. We need like one more beat with her. One more scene with her where she just says like, this is, you know, this is what I think happened. And I thought to myself, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't really have anything other than like when I went down there, when I went, when I went down to, to visit her and to interview her and David was like, okay, well, what was that like? It's like, well, you know, I got there and it was like midday and we went out and sat by her pool and she started smoking a cigarette and asked me if I wanted to take a shot of Jack Daniels. And it was like 1130 on a Tuesday or something. <laughs> and David was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's your, that's your last scene with her, right? Like you're, 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 you're like taking a shot of Daniels and then talking <laughs> about the case. I think you probably shouldn't include that. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I really didn't want to include much of myself in there. Obviously the, the prologue is, you know, is me. Cause it, I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to establish the, like why you're about to go on this journey early on and the mm-hmm. little, the little personal connection there. And I was reluctant to put myself back in, but in the end, that was the, that was the best thing I had. And, um, you know, and there's a little bit more, obviously there's, there's me meeting with her and then me meeting with Joel and Mary in New York. Um, so, you know, and I thought, okay, you know, like, like salt with cooking, you know, if you use it sparingly and in the right places, it's okay. But if you start dumping it over everything unnecessarily, <laughs> you've ruined your, you've ruined your dish. So I thought a little bit first person at the end, I could get away with hopefully. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, um, to, to bring that variety. You know, I know that as, um, you know, the pastor, uh, preparing um, talks every week. There's much more that I research than include in the actual final oh, yeah. product. And I'm wondering, what did you not include? What didn't make it into the book that you maybe wish could have, but for space limitations, it it couldn't? Yeah. Um I mean, tons of stuff, just, you know, as you, uh, my experience is very similar to what you just described. And it's a mix of material too, that didn't make it, you know, there was some pretty interesting stuff about the week that elapsed between when Fox news published Malia Zimmerman's story about Seth and when they retracted that same story a week later this is all in may of 2017 and this is you know probably one of the the main climactic moments of the book um certainly when the seth rich conspiracy theories reached their highest volume by far um you know there's a week of sort of internal chaos and scrambling and trying to understand what happened how this story that fox had published almost immediately begins to crumble because everyone involved is saying it's not true. You know, I, 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 I got some material on the inside there and I had some, you know, some, some, some secondhand material as well uh, that I really tried to, to confirm or tried to, to nail down um, as accurately as possible. And I just honestly ran out of time. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, at some point my editor was like, you, you can't keep reporting. Like, you know, the book is, has to be what it is right now. 
that one hurt. That one definitely hurt because I, I would have loved to have that stuff in there, uh, including some stuff about Sean Hannity. Um, you know, there, there was, I would have liked to have included more about Seth um, as, uh, you know, his personality, his, his worldview. I mean, I, I have, you know, just so many stories, dozens and dozens and dozens of stories that I thought teased out some piece of his personality, what made him unique, what made him him. And, you know, you just can't do that. I mean, the book is not a biography of Seth. And I I really had to be brutal with myself about picking the anecdotes, picking the quotes from friends, family, etc., that I thought could bring him to life as, as quickly as possible in the book, because then the story had to progress. It had to move on from there. And, you know, I, again, I, I probably had like 50 pages worth of stuff about Seth, but I couldn't put 50 pages of that in the book. It, you know, I think um, a reader would say, okay, I get it. Like, where does the story go from here? So that, that was, that was tough as well. Um, yeah, I, I would say probably, I would say probably those two, those two were the hardest to, uh, to leave, to leave out. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, so my, my last question for you, um, is, you know, revolves around Mary, Joel, um, and Aaron, um, who, who, who play, you know, or I shouldn't say play, um, that, that their stories are emphasized quite a bit, um, throughout, throughout your book. And, you know, uh, again, it's like, as a parent, I could only, uh, I can't imagine what they had to go through, through the several years, um, and ongoing, um, of the murder of their child. So, I mean, like for you as the writer of the book, um, one, like, did you, did you, seek out their approval before the book was written or, you know, or did you sort of like circle back after it was written to kind of get their approval and like, and what was that like? Uh, Cause it, it's almost like, even though you're, you're telling the story from sort of a investigative journalist viewpoint, but you're also telling the story about a murdered child, you know, of these, of these parents. And like, I could, I, it, it it had to have been a heavy burden for you to to make sure that you got it right. Um, so so maybe you can talk a little bit about that process of kind of getting the the, the family's approval um, to to write the story. Yeah, I mean, I I would say I felt a tremendous responsibility and a weight to get the story right. To again try to capture Seth as best as I could and, you know, to, to do all of it, to do all of this, to write this book in a way that was, um, that, that was sensitive to what they had gone through and, you know, didn't feel exploitative. I didn't feel like I was extracting their story for my own purposes, even though in part that is what I do. And that is what any storyteller does when you go to someone and say, you know, can I tell your story? I mean, my, I mean, I, I long since lost track of the number of times I've talked 
with Joel and Mary and Aaron. And, you know, I, I interviewed them all a number of times over a span of a few years. I uh, was always calling them and, you know, checking this fact, checking this recollection. Um, I interviewed, I interviewed Joel and Mary together and I interviewed them separately. And, you know, if there was a story that Joel told, I would ask Mary about that same story. And a lot of the time she would have a slightly different, and in a few cases, significantly different take on that same story. And that's just, you know, it's good for the book because the story, the, the, the reporting is richer and more accurate. Um, but that's also what reporters have to do. You have to do your due diligence. You have to see a moment, an anecdote, an event from every angle that you possibly can, because every person's recollection of that event is going to be different. Um, when I when I had a draft that was ready for fact checking, I, I I wouldn't say I sought out their approval or their sign off because you know they had signed off on cooperating with the project, and I, that that was the you know what I would call the the sign off point. But then when I had the draft, you know, I went to them and I said, all right, we, we're going to go through this and fact check every fact in this, every recollection, even the stuff where it's, you know, you said that you were feeling anxious at this point or you were feeling furious at this point. Is that actually what you felt? Like, can we double check that? And you know, the good thing about a really, really intense fact checking process is not only do you catch things that weren't, ex that weren't right. And you fix them, um, you know. It also deepens the it deepens the story. It improves the story because a lot of times someone like Mary will say, "Yeah, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, there was this other thing that happened, or this other conversation that took place that I forgot to tell you about. But now that my head is in this space, I've remembered it. So it actually it's it's fact checking, but it's even its own form of reporting." Um, and it's the same kind of thing that we do at ProPublica, to be clear. You know, once we have the story, then we go to everyone in the story and we say, is this accurate? Is this, you know, uh, framed correctly? This is the kind of context in which it appears. Is that accurate? Is that fair? Um, you know, it's a laborious, exhausting process, uh, but it's essential to making, to making the story accurate and, and compelling and, and, and fair and good. Um, so we did all that before the book came out. Uh, Mary's kind of a night owl. So I think one of our conversations, she texted me at like a fact-checking conversation. She texted me at like 11 and she's like, can we do the call now? And I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> uh, sure. And I think we were on the phone till like five in the morning, just mm. like line, literally point by point by point by point by point going through these things in, in from the, from the draft of the book and, you know, and, and making sure it was all, you know, completely locked down. And then, um, and then I sent them the book and, you know, I think that I mean, they, they said they really liked the book. They really liked the parts of it about Seth, not surprisingly. Um, they said that, uh, uh, you know, they said that they're the, that, they felt like it was one of the first things written about this whole saga that didn't just sort of paint them as like the two dimensional grieving parents. Uh, 
you know, Joel and Mary Rich always, always mentioned in, in as a pairing, always kind of the same notes and and uh, descriptions, and and I think that they appreciated uh, that 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 was the case here. I will say, given the the name and the some of the themes of this podcast, you know, one of the most revealing conversations I had about them, and actually a conversation that really helped me see them as individuals and not as a joint unit was with their rabbi out in Omaha. You know, at one point I had a conversation with, with him and, uh, who's a great guy and really smart, very, very, you know, sort of a, a, a deep thinker, empathetic guy. And, uh, you know, he helped me kind of understand the two of them as individuals. And I think that that really helped with the book as well. But, um, but yeah, they've, they've, they've seen, they said they really liked the book and I think they appreciate when people come up to them and they say they've learned something about Seth from reading the book. I think that means a lot to Joel and Mary as well. Um, so, you know, if that, if they feel good about that, then I think that, that I feel good about that too. That's a, that's really awesome. I mean, there's, there's so much more we didn't even get into. Um, I mean, there's like, you know, Dr. Seva, the Steve <laughs> Scalise connection, yeah. the like overstock CEO, the Julian, I mean, Assange, yeah. NSA source. I mean, like really there's just so much involved um, and, and so much like so much we could get into, but for those watching or listening, you'll just have to buy the book. Um, Please. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, help, help the book, you know, surpass the, the confidence man, um, <laughs> Oh, Maggie, Maggie Haberman. I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, you know what? I, I'm, I'm happy to even be in the conversation with Maggie. <laughs> and uh, awesome. yeah, and, and thank you so much, Andy, for uh, giving us some of your time for writing the book. Uh, it was a yeah, pleasure. Thank you. I, I always enjoy.